Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. First, an announcement. I'll give more details in a week or two, but if you're a regular listener of this podcast, mark your calendars now for Friday, May 5th, for the second ever Hey Amarillo live show. That's right, we're doing a live show. I'm approaching the 300th episode of this podcast, which started back in 2017, and I want to celebrate that milestone by recording that episode in front of a live audience. And that audience, I'm hoping, will include former guests and longtime listeners, even new listeners. I want to meet all of y'all. And I also have a special interview guest. It's going to be a lot of fun. So set aside May 5th, yes, Cinco de Mayo, for the 300th episode Hey Amarillo live show. And watch for details or listen for details, whatever the case may be. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to realtor and real estate broker Leslie Cunningham online at lesliecunningham.com and to realtors Michelle and Andy Justice with Wick Realty online at wickrealty.com. Today's guest is Zach Wilson, the executive director of the High Plains Food Bank. Now, technically, Zach has been on the show before. I interviewed him over the phone during the first few weeks of the COVID shutdown in March of 2020. Now, that was a crazy time, of course, for the food bank and everyone else. But the food bank has changed a lot since then. Every year, High Plains Food Bank distributes literally several million pounds of food to people in need here in the Texas Panhandle. So I wanted to hear from Zach about the scope of what they do but also about his journey from a WT student intern at the nonprofit to becoming its executive director and what it looks like to manage such a massive and massively important nonprofit here in Amarillo. So here's Zach Wilson. Zach Wilson, welcome to the Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm honored to have you. I know we've spoken in the past, actually for this podcast, uh, back during the weird first weeks of COVID, yeah. when we talked on the phone, yeah. and your life was insane at that moment, yeah. uh, more so than everybody else's. Um, I'm glad to have you actually in studio and uh, for a longer conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I want to start with you uh, the same way I start with all my guests, and that's just to ask why you're in Amarillo. So what brought you here in the first place? You know, just uh, glad to start out by saying, you know, this this is where I was born. Okay. And so uh, born here in Amarillo, and then shortly, uh, about a year or so after I was born, we, we moved to Plainview, uh, where my dad took a job and lived there for about 10 years until he um, lost his job in a, in a merger, the whole SNL Oh, savings and, loan uh, savings and loans stuff. in the 80s, yeah. And so we uh, we moved to Canyon shortly, about 10 years or so after uh, we, we moved to Plainview and uh, been here since then. Uh, you know, grew up in, in Canyon, graduated from Canyon High, went to WT. And, uh, you know, just this is all I've ever known is the Texas Panhandle. Hmm. Um, de- several different places, but uh, it's mostly resided here in Amarillo Canyon area and... Uh, my wife is from Dumas, so okay. we are definitely panhandle based and 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 proud of it. You know, there's there's no other place that I would rather be that I would rather have grown up in and and now married and and have children, you know, and and growing them up in the same area. Was it a difficult transition going from Plainview to Canyon? Like, are I mean, they're both small towns; they're relatively close in size. 
Uh, is, is there a distinct personality between them? I mean, as a 10-year-old that, that you might have recognized. Right, yeah. You know, yeah, there definitely was um, a difference, you know, just being a smaller town. You know, Canyon, I got that that feel. It was it was definitely much smaller. In Plainview, you know, at least back then, anyway, it, it seems like you could drive around town and still not see anybody <laughs> for, for a little while. But there definitely were some differences. And But it was still a great place. They had their, their differences, but... Um, in, in their communities, as each yeah. panhandle community yeah. does, it, it just goes back to the people. I mean, they're just it's just great people, and forged uh, some friendships that I still have today. You know, from from both towns, and uh, I, I know many who have come from other areas of the country or, or larger areas don't have that same experience. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I love that, and I love that for now. My kids growing up in the area. When you got towards. Uh, graduation from high school in Canyon. Did you know what you wanted to do? You know, I I did not. Uh, I I know I wanted to. I after I said all of that, I know I wanted to get out of the area yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and go to uh, you know a bigger place. I I, I definitely wanted to go to A and M. Just just go to outside of what I'd grown up in, and but I didn't know what you know I wanted to do at the time and. So it ended up me saying, okay, well, I'll compromise and go to West Texas A&M, which, which was no compromise at all in hindsight by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so, you know, got into my my second year, eventually got into communications, mm. you know, marketing, PR, advertising, all of that. And That's a pretty strong department. Yeah, it is. WT now and even back then. I realized that going in and I was like, wow, why did it take me so long to <laughs> figure that out? And then once again, you know, those those friendships, you know, there that I forged in, in college you know, going forward. It was a great university to be at. And then I realized, hey, I'm still in Canyon, but, you know, I, I feel like almost that I'm in uh, another town. And, and this was before all the great development yeah, that, that WT went through. And uh, so I can't imagine what it's like now, but um, it just, it, it, it's kind of like my life goes in those, those phases. You get to the phase, everything is good. Then you kind of grow. Well, I think I grow at, grow out of that. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, <laughs> I am, I do have it good. We do live in a great area. So yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to go elsewhere to begin with and uh, just kind of, because uh, most of my friends or most of the uh, folks I graduated with were going to you know DFW or going to you know a, a larger metro area. Well, and there are still local students who will go to WT thinking that they're going to transfer. You know, almost treat it like Amarillo College. Like yeah. let me do this for a year or two, get my basics out of the way, and then I'll go on to A and M or I'll go on to UT. Yeah. Was was that maybe your plan? And you thought. No, I don't have to do this. You, you know, I thought that. I thought, well, you, you know, and, and this is something my parents told me. He said, well, you know, you know, you can you can always start here and see what happens. But WT has this strong of a department if you're interested in this and that, and and kept trying to you know coach me that way. But um, so about midway through my sophomore year, I started seeing a lot of folks I knew come back. Okay. They're transferring back to WT for they one reason or the other. Uh, yeah. and, and, thought, and okay. came back or, or and even some came back from tech. So it was it was like, okay, well, if they're they're coming back here, then maybe I should just, you know, write it out. See see how things are going. And and it turned up being obviously the, the best choice for me. So I am familiar with the communications and PR marketing program at WT, because uh, that's my career. That's also uh, my my daughter's focus when she went to WT. And I know it's one of those 
career paths that can be really nebulous or flexible, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, It's not like uh, you get a legal degree, you go and you do law. Uh, There's a lot of ways that you can go. Um, When you did that, did you think, okay, here's my career path. This is definitely what I want to do. Or were you just doing what felt natural and see what happens? That's a great question because I I was feeling like, okay, wow. Uh, When you get to that uh, place where, you know, we had to do internships now and now things are starting to get real. And I was, I remember thinking, okay, so what do I really want to do with this? Uh, What, what can I do with this? And then hit another big question mark. You know, I was like, wow, this has been a great experience. And Learned a lot, and but I, I I still don't know what you know I I wanted to do, and um, it was out of sheer hesitancy that I had to do this this uh, internship to get credits, you know, to graduate. That I found this uh, this one place that was just a, a voluntary internship, you know, over the summer that would that would get me what I needed to 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 graduate and. Was at this place called the High Plains Food Bank, hmm. and you know it was from June to August, and I go in there not knowing what to expect, and they said, "Hey, you know this, it's all hands on deck here, and this is what we do from operations all the way down to marketing, and you know our, our handful of events and to the data entry into you know all these things that that make it possible to run a nonprofit." And I said, "Okay, well, I'm going to stay busier than I thought I was going to." And then an amazing thing happened. I ended up loving it <laughs> and going out to you know places and that we would distribute food at and and seeing you know the various different communities that comprise you know the Texas Panhandle and how each is different from the next and but all with the common thread of helping folks. And I remember in August of uh, two thousand and two. When that was, I was thinking, you know, I sure would like to work here. And that's the mm. first time in my career yeah. that I really said, hey, I, I know where I'm supposed to be. Like, and did I, you get to do communication stuff, PR stuff, or yes. was it like loading pallets and yeah. trucks and all that? Yeah, the vast majority of it was, you know, communications and marketing and planning and, right. and special They didn't events. say, here's a box cutter, get to work. Right, yeah, no, <laughs> they they did in some some aspects, and it, although it was, you know, a very small percentage of the job, but that was very that was very satisfying when I did get to do it, that I got to see the whole sphere of of how things had worked. And I remember thinking, okay, finally, I've gone through this process of my life, these ups and downs and, and this through college and wanting to know where where's my landing spot, where do I need to be? But more importantly, I, I just discovered just the value in helping folks. And with that true need of food and something that we had gone through as a family early. I mean, just pieces just started hmm. coming together in, a, in an amazing way. So I, I'm going to assume that you didn't have that experience as an intern and then graduate from college and apply to be the executive director there, <laughs> that there's a few more stops along that path. So tell me what that sort of looked like in the uh, the years after you had that experience as an intern. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, I graduated from WT in December of 2002 and was, you know, full on board, ready to work at the food bank, but that wasn't possible at the time. Um, so I took a position in, you know, the, the financial industry and, and worked there actually for, for about two and a half years. 
which was good. It, it taught me a lot of uh, a lot of things that I needed to know, just that extra layer of grounding that I needed and um, got a call in, in 2005 saying, hey, we, you know, we have this position open now. Um, so they remembered you? Yeah, like yeah. I you? remember Tiffany, she told me, she said, I'm going to step down and um, if you're really interested and in I'll definitely put your name forward and you can apply and go through the process and uh, it was, you know, communications, marketing, special events, planning. And yeah, it just was like I was just there when I go in for the interview and uh, it just said, wow, it's like I never left. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's how I got on. I got on um, shortly after that in May of 2005 doing, you know, communications and marketing. We had these these little known places called social media yeah. um, starting to pop up. It's a and, tumultuous uh, period. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was on the ground floor of all of that, uh, by no means an expert. But anyway, so it was it, w- it was just the, the timing was right. And I, I couldn't have been more excited in my whole career than to, you know, begin working at the food bank. And it just came together. How long did you work in the communications aspect for about five years so from may 2005 to about june of 2010 and shortly after starting in uh, may of 2005 several months later in august of 2005 we had hurricane katrina okay you know hit the coast and just you know massive response from our area of course to help you know our neighbors on the so i got to that was just a, a trial by fire, too. Um, well, and a lot of Katrina refugees ended up coming to this area. Yeah. I mean, I remember families that uh, that arrived here and um, had to find homes and sort of start over. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, we worked quite a bit with the city when, you know, that was announced. At first, you know, they had some, some temporary shelter set up at the Civic Center to begin with. And, and you're right. There was a lot of families who, who called this area home now after that. So yeah, it, it caught a, talk about disrupting the the timeline there of oh, I'm brand new here. I've got I'm going to make sure everything yeah. is right and correct and I'm doing then all of a sudden, you know, something happens and I thought we'd seen the last of that, but <laughs> since we're on that subject and I know you were not in a leadership position uh, at that time, but like tell me how the food bank thinks about events like that where let's say you've got other parts of Texas that need your food, they need services. Like, how do you become part of the meeting of that need without neglecting, you know, the people in the panhandle that depend on you? Because I I know that's a really delicate balance. Yeah, absolutely. And the best way that we can do and make and make that possible is being part of a of a statewide network of other food banks. So there's. 20 other food banks in the state. So um, we partner together on, well, actually we partner together and make a sort of a state association where um, we work on everything from legislative priorities on the state level to, you know, pulling food, food resources. There may be a food bank that sits in a, an area where it has a huge, you know, distribution center that they can share with the other network. So it's, you know, it's working with a statewide network that, that makes that possible and um, from what we saw here, though, for Hurricane Katrina specifically, was we had an outpouring from the community that was just bringing food okay. specifically to help the coast. And um, we have a, a separate detached warehouse that we actually kept really physical inventories completely separate. So everything that was given for that disaster went to that disaster, that food and money. 
And um, so, so you're right. You know, we we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know it was going to end up being that life changing. Mm-hmm. You know, for the coast and for the families involved. And I think that our community saw that and and say, hey, we know that you are here, and we but we know that you will also help to ensure to get the food where it needs to yeah. go. You and, don't end up siphoning off resources that might have gone to somebody, you correct. know, in, in Dalhart or something. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we had to maintain those those two separate channels, though. We we still had to remember we've got a we have a distribution system here. There are folks in the Texas Panhandle that that need help. So. That was a challenge three months in, mm-hmm. you know, to you know help help coordinate that. But we were able to to keep it separate, and then sure enough, as the holidays rolled around, you know, we were able to receive an overabundance of of items and 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 funds that we needed that year to you know to help our community. Tell me about the path going from your communications position to executive director. Was that something that kind of came out as a surprise to you or as as you began to see okay this is kind of where we're going did did it feel like a natural switch well i guess in some in some ways it was a surprise but my predecessor jane janie singleton took me into her office one day and my boss at the time of course as well and said hey look you know here's kind of where i i'm thinking you know my path is leading me and i think that i've reached a point where, you know, I've been here for almost 20 years and looking for a new challenge. And then also she mentioned something about, you know, it's, it's good to maybe have a set of, uh, fresh eyes. And I'm mm-hmm. just sitting here kind of thinking hand on my chin, like I have it now going, this is where it's going, where I'm thinking it's going. And, and she said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to recommend you to the board as a potential candidate to to replace me as I was doing that. And so I thought, wow, um, you know, those five years from 2005 to 2010 went super fast and thought I got in a, a rhythm and, and um, that things were going well. And then all of a sudden this happened and she said, you know, there's, there's definitely going to be challenges on along the way, and but we need a, a new angle on this place. And, and this is not; she wasn't discounting anything about herself. She's a great leader and and established the vast majority of our facilities and, and trucking system uh, already. But uh, I can remember me, you know, just pinching myself, saying, mm-hmm. "Is this is this really happening?" And shortly thereafter, I was interviewed by you know, the the board and. They offered me the position, and I just remember <laughs> I, I only been married for about a year or so, and it was like, wow, this is kind of a, a catapult in, yeah. in so many different ways. And, well, it's a big shift from yeah. handling, let's say, the social media and some newsletters, mm-hmm. um, yeah, making sure the logo looks right on everything to running the organization, and yeah. which is not just a nonprofit organization, but like there's a whole distribution and yeah. shipping component, all that kind yeah. of stuff. It, it It's an organization that we have ties to almost every county in the Texas panhandle. And um, I remember thinking to myself, not a time to screw it up, Zach. <laughs> so <laughs> we've got to, we've really got to um, start thinking about it. So uh, just completely honored, you know, for that opportunity to come up. And, and then of course, you know, shortly thereafter, you know, just we we started in, encountering some challenges with you know some food supply initially, and you know it was it was up to me then to um, 
you know, to really kind of write our grants that we were okay. doing at the time too. So it was not only what I was doing until I found a replacement, but also, you know, some of the things that she handled herself that's more in a development role right. or a philanthropy role is is something I was doing too. So the work piled up pretty quick, but it was it was it was still I had a, a lot of adrenaline to move forward. I mean, obviously there's a learning curve uh, when you're taking a step up like that. Yep. Did it feel like something you were equipped to do? Like those challenges were challenges you were ready to overcome or was it just like, well, Janie wants me to do this, I I better do this. Like like did it feel like this is this is what I want to do. I I'm in the right place. You know, after the dust settled a little bit uh-huh. and, and the in the shock and the adrenaline wore off a little bit, that you're right, that's exactly what happened. It was just like, okay, yeah, you know what, I can't I can do this. You know, I, I love to get out and establish relationships and obviously I love to talk. Um so you know, the these these things, you know, kind of you know work in my favor and you know, once again as these little bell curves in my life keep keep happening. Here's here's another one. Here's, here's a great opportunity, but more importantly, driven by how can we continue to to help folks. I want to give you the opportunity to compare where the food bank is now in 2023 to maybe where it was in 2010. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the work that you do. They may not know the full scope of it, sure. but uh, pretty good name recognition. A lot of people will give towards it. But how has it changed? Like, how have you seen it grow in the past 13 years? Well, we uh, definitely have looked at other other ways than other than the food items that you may think of or it comes to mind um, when when you think of the food bank, which is mostly non-perishable, you know, types of food items into more capturing produce and protein. We also do that a lot now through our our state network and a lot of produce that grows south of San Antonio here in state and um, produce that would otherwise be tilled under by growers that couldn't be sold. How how can we incentivize them to get it out of the ground Mm. and get it to other food banks, especially in areas where, you know, growing fresh produce may not be suitable for that area. So we looked at our, our produce and protein expansion and then uh, looked at, you know, obviously um, upgrading our trucks and, and getting our trucks, uh, some additional trucks to grow. And then also the retail food donation sector really kind of opened up at that time, you know, big relationships with uh, United and uh, United Supermarkets and Walmart, for example, mm-hmm. really kind of aided and the growth of that food rescue and then distribution. And by, um, say, about 2015, we had doubled the amount of food that we were sending out on an average monthly basis because of really those areas. And um, But then we also then from about 2015 to about 2020 kind of looked at more of how can we even quicker get it get it into our our partner our network's hands um so they can get it out faster um so we would have for example a produce or a, a food donor come in who has you know a perishable food item wanting to connect it to you know people that need it the most but it may be two truckloads yeah. of of produce or uh, of some of those items, so we would then you know connect them with with our trucks and then 
have a network where we can quickly distribute that, you know, just in time deliveries, okay. in other words. So that helped, you know, kind of aid in the, the growth of our, of our distribution channels. And but then, you know, we, we, we hit some, some rough times in 2018, 19, where, you know, those started decreasing rapidly and it was hard to, we, we hadn't been really in the business of purchasing a lot of food or, or bringing food in, although we can, and we did, but it, it was mostly dependent on, you know, getting fresh produce out, getting fresh protein out, working with our retail partners to then, you know, capture food that's going to go to waste, but get it into hands. I've had a lot of conversations with businesses and organizations about how, the crisis of the pandemic transformed that organization. You know, whether it's a restaurant turning to delivery and they hadn't done delivery in the past to, you know, companies that now allow work from home uh, or, or remote work a certain portion of the week. Stuff that probably might have taken 10 years to happen and then all of a sudden it was thrust upon us, you know, over several weeks or months. And I, I wonder, like, what are some of those lasting things that happened during COVID at the food bank uh, that make it look different now than it did in January or February of 2020? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, re I remember, as everyone did, you know, when when all of that started and um, really, really questioning for the first time, like, wow, how, how is this now going to work? <laughs> how How is, you know, when, you know, we go into our you know, retail stores and, and can't find what we need. How is this going to work more so for, for folks who, who really need it? And showed us that, you know, we need to go uh, some areas that we were lacking, such as proactively purchasing or acquiring and bringing food in ourselves and, and to make that make that a priority. And I mean making a priority. It wasn't necessarily a budgetary priority because, you know, the funds just weren't there. Yeah. But one good thing about all of that, I might add, is just I was I've never been so blown away in my life on the support that we received from the community. And then I'll even expand and go nationwide. I was hearing from foundations and corporations from other states that are calling me and saying, we want to give you money, we're, wow. you know, we're giving everybody money, but we want to give, give you money. I said, I said, that's great, but, but why us? <laughs> we're way down here. You're way up there. What, what's, what's going on? And I said, you know, well, if we're at home, we're working from home and you're on the front lines, this is the least we can do. Hmm. And, and I remember that phrase sticking out to me even more so than anything is like, what are we doing for the least of these? <laughs> Mm -hmm. in in our area and no more excuses about what well, we don't have the money or we don't have you know the logistics to make it work we we need to now find a way to make it work even at, when this whole thing ends what do we do when we come out on the other side and um so that's what really uh, transformed me I, re I just remember it was it was an individual out of out of Pennsylvania actually um that example i just gave and uh, I ended up talking to the food bank that's in that area and saying, "Just are you okay with this?" First of all, because <laughs> this they guy me, wants to give. Yeah, us yeah. I mean, they, they make sure they gave to you first. Yeah. Um, and he said, "Oh no, this this individual is just I've never seen anything like it. He wants to make an impact, and he's burning up his phone trying to wow. trying to help the entire country in the best way he can." And 
And, you know, so, so for us, that means, you know, some, some shifts on what we've always done. I have a pen in my office says, but we've always done it this way with a big red circle with a <laughs> line through it. And it, you know, I, I don't think, I see myself as something as set in my ways, but I thought, well, maybe, but maybe I am. Maybe we're, we're not doing everything that we probably need to be doing to, to help our area. And so I remember if we ever get on the other side of this, this thing called COVID that, you know, things are going to, things are going to change. And, um, that's where we are. I mean, we, uh, have got five, six new trucks on order. I say on order. We don't know when they will arrive yeah. with our current environment and with the whole idea of doing more outreach to our communities, but also, you know, doing some direct distribution ourselves, which we've never really done at the food bank um, simply because of the capacity. Um, we just didn't have the room to set up something like that, but I've always, always, always wanted to do that. And so now we're, we're looking into this year of establishing something uh, that on site, we, we just completed a renovation of a building we've owned just right across the alley mm-hmm. from the food bank. That's where we moved all of our offices and in its place, we're going to establish that hopefully within this year or early next year to then capture those opportunities of not only helping each person with food, but also looking at the health aspects of the food, you know, the produce and the protein. And and we have access to that. We can bring that in. We just now need to make the connection. And I know that sounds so, well, why weren't you doing this to begin with? But it was one of those moments that the pandemic just woke me up out of a, out of a, I hate to say a stupor, but no, you, but know, you get in a routine yeah, and yeah. it seems to work. And it's yeah. until that routine gets shaken up by, you know, a pandemic or whatever it might be, yeah. then you start to see, oh, well, this is a good opportunity to change. Yeah. I want to give you the chance to to provide some education because I, I think a lot of listeners know the food bank, of course. They have participated maybe in the Together We Can drives or they've raised you know, bring a can to school and, and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of external ways that families get involved with the food bank. But like, what are the things that we don't know? You know, I know you've got a lot of numbers that you can throw out. What are what are the things that your average, uh, maybe donor through an event like that at school, uh, probably doesn't realize about what the food bank does? We historically have operated through a, a network of, you know, of partners throughout, you know, we service 29 counties total and as I mentioned at the top of this, you know, each, and you know this too, every every community is different, you know, and, and, and we're so spread out in the Texas panhandle. And so that's, that's the system that seemed to work for us. We can get you the food, we can access this food, bring it in, and then get it to you. And just in time, can you, you know, help the community? But uh, it, that's historically how we have, have worked. And uh, as I look, as I said, we're looking into, you know, uh, uh, changing that and, and doing more, you know, direct distribution and, and education and, um, and tying those two things um, together. But, you know, just really one of those other things is, and you, you hate to sometimes hear it from someone who's behind a microphone or on TV saying, well, the best way to help us out is money. But, you know, what COVID has taught us is that what we've tried to emphasize in the past is that is one way that you can help. So 
every time that we bring in a dollar, we can distribute the equivalent of 13 meals. Hmm. And people will just, you know, I, I can see them, you know, sit back and just I'm thinking a thinking dollar about might that. buy you, you know, three eggs or something at this oh, point. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so exactly. How does that work? Because, um, you know, the, the donated food aspect that we have that we're bringing in every single day really defers all of our, brings our cost way down. So now all we are doing really is, in essence, hopefully just the cost of distributing food, which have definitely gone up mm-hmm. from fuel to maintenance to trucks and, and everything like that. So um, it, it, it is a, it's a combination of, of our expenses, uh, all of our income that we've raised over the past you know uh, several years. It used to be a dollars about uh, six to seven meals, but we have a huge bump of with everything that happened to us with COVID. So we're trying to communicate that out. The best efficient way is, is, is really is to donate money because in April, May, and June of 2020, that's really the only way yeah. we had food coming in. It wasn't people getting out and donating us food. Everyone was at home or, 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 or didn't want to get out. So we had to bring it in, you know, in other ways. And because of that, we were able to distribute 1 million pounds of food a month in two months of 2020. We were able to just meet those needs finally. Mm-hmm. I hate to put it that way, but but that's that's what it is. We're always up against the wall, it seems like, with with something. And in those instances, we had everything that we needed to try to adequately meet the need that was out there. So there's that. And, you know, just, just the efficiency of our organization is another thing I I would say, maybe, you know, so for 95 cents of every dollar given to us goes to food distribution and programs. So, Hmm. and it's because of that donated food value that brings all of that down and allows us to be more efficient. And then also I'd say probably, you know, the amount of fresh produce that we bring in every year. Um, we distributed over 2 million pounds out of our total 8 million pounds last year was just fresh produce yeah. alone, which uh, it, it, it decreased during the pandemic, but we're back up to, to normal levels and, and we're trying that shift of not only trying to meet the need of out, that's out there in, in food insecurity, but do it in a way that we're helping improve lives. And that's that's something that uh, is, is really interesting to me because I, I remember uh, when my kids were little, you know, they'd come home from school and say, oh, we have an extra 10 minutes at recess if right. we bring a can of food. And so we we would find the can that we are least likely to eat anytime soon. Right. And they'd take that and they'd give it to the food bank. And yeah. Everybody feels good about that. You know, yeah, of course. You, you don't want to take away from that um, right. because I think it probably still gets used. But it's like instead of giving you our leftovers or our unwanted peas, you know, in a can. Um, there are better ways to use that money and healthier ways at this yeah. point that you guys can do with it that yeah. we can't do with just a, a thing that we bought at the grocery store. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's exactly it. We, we were looking for the messenger to help deliver us that. And unfortunately it was, it was COVID, <laughs> you know, that, that really helped compound that. And, you know, we, we hear that, from folks now a lot that call in and say, hey, what do you need? What do what do the folks need? I know it's not, just like you said, I know it's not me probably giving you something on the food side, although we'll, we'll always take that. We're not, you know, turning away any food donation, but the best way to efficiently help is, is let us go after those products. And uh, so that's what we're kind of focusing on now moving forward as well. 
I'm going to close this section um, because I I think you're in a unique position as a recipient of donated, whether it's donated food, donated money uh, from corporate donors, big businesses, whatever. Um, you're the recipient of the generosity of the people who live here on a daily basis. And I, I wonder what being in that role has sort of taught you about this area. I mean, you are uniquely attuned to the needs of this area and the poverty and the food insecurity, but also toward the generosity of this area. So like, what have you realized about where we live? You know, never underestimate the generosity of the Texas Panhandle and where it can come from. Um, the vast of all those types of donors that you just mentioned, it's individuals that drive, that drive it. And, um, you, you hear that in philanthropy trends, you, you see that in workshops, you hear about your, your peers and the nonprofit sector here in Amarillo or, or other food banks, you know, saying the same thing, but will it ever get there for us? Uh, not that that was ever there before, but just the vast majority in the example I listed earlier, the individual, you know, although that was out of state, but individuals is, is, is who support us, but specifically in our area, People who uh, I've never met before, you know, blowing us away and people I've known my whole life that weren't, that I didn't imagine were capable of, you know, such generosity mm -hmm. just, just overpoured. And, and then uh, one phone call of a, of a woman, you know, crying, saying she, I am, I'm here at my house, but I, I, I just realized how precious this thing of life is. And I want to live it to the full and give as much. I, I've been, I've been holding back. I didn't want to do it, but now I see, I never imagined this would be coming. So now I'm going to, hmm. I'm going to step up to the plate and, and it's, it's just, it's panhandle wide, as you know, just the amazing generosity of, of people that you've never met that some of them don't even want to know that, that, that they did something, you know, they just want to, to give and, and do it selflessly. And can't I can't really put any more words to it to describe how amazing that is and really how amazing that this area is compared to other parts of the nation when it comes to giving. It's absolutely amazing. This episode of Hamarello is supported by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings here in Amarillo. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family. They live right here in town. And here's the thing, they offer a lot more than just recliners. You'll find all kinds of furniture there in a variety of contemporary styles, fabrics, leather, colors. Amarillo's locally owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of those products in stock, ready to take home or deliver today. And they've got special financing right now, up to 48 months. So go visit the showroom, Lazy Boy of Amarillo, today at 3636 Sansi. Okay, I'm back with Zach Wilson of High Plains Food Bank. Zach, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon on the WT campus. I imagine you visited there as a student oh, and probably absolutely. recently. I so, love it. Yeah. Uh, it's the largest history museum in Texas. Its collection includes a set of Western lunchboxes, since we're talking about food. Um, that were based on TV Westerns from the 1940s and 1950s. And I, I've seen this collection, and they look just like the lunchboxes I had when I started school in the late 70s. 
except mine were, you know, Star Wars and yeah. uh, stuff like that. And so that technology really didn't change from the 50s into yeah. the 80s. Uh, now it's really different. Um, my my lunchboxes will probably be in a museum someday. <laughs> so you can learn more. You can see those at panhandleplanes.org. Okay, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, uh, and I know long-range planning is probably a lot of what you do, mm-hmm. um, what do you hope for? You know, I hope for a community that's grown um, and, and, and really hit a new milestone. I know we're, we're on the verge of, you know, thinking of big things here, you know, for our area. So I, I hope that we can grow and do it in, in, a, in a graceful way, but at the same time that the hearts of the folks that live here grow with that as okay. well, if that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, just with our area and and helping um, and and knowing that there's going to always be differences of opinion, but but when we all put that aside for the greater good of you know helping our area succeed, but also helping its people succeed as well. Yeah, there's there's an aspect of growth where you want it to happen, but not so much that it changes the personality of a place. Yes. You know, and you have places like Austin that are going through growing pains. And oh, yeah. People that live there are like, this is not the Austin I remember. And you don't want anybody to say, well, this is not the Amarillo I remember, you know, from 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. While still expanding enough to continue meeting the needs of this area. Right. Absolutely. We, we need to grow, but at the same time, doing it in a way that you that that maintains our identity. Okay. Other than wind, and this is a good day to... Um, take this off the table because it's one of those terrible wind days. Um, but other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I'm going to kind of venture on the humorous side or try to be. I'm just I'm just going to say there's you know a lot of road construction. <laughs> I know that's like what a lot of people probably don't think that's funny. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I like it because that's indicative of growth. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that the other day as I was sitting in there griping about it, you know, and just how, how crazy and horrible it, it is, you know, it just, it seems like wherever you go, there's, whether it be road or, or uh, commercial, it, it's exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, I said, wait a minute, this, this is just what we went back to on, on point number one there is, is we're growing, we're expanding. And, um, I, I like that idea. And so if that's the case, then let's just keep going. Yeah. Let's keep, let's keep growing and let's have as much construction that we need to, you know, to take us to the to the next level. Well, and it's on all sides of town too. Like, like there's construction on oh, Ross yeah. over near the food bank, and yep. you know, out on the west side on the loop. And so mm-hmm. nobody's immune from it, and that may be part of the frustration, but it's good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, what does this area not have enough of? You know, I'm going to say uh, something that growing up that always benefited me. I'm going to say, you know, bookstores. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, we have some, and I, I know more now than we did, yeah, six it, or seven years ago. So, not discounting that by any means, but it just seems like when I was growing up, I you know, summertime it was summer reading program, and I always had a book in my hand, and and even now I enjoy walking in and you know just browsing for books, looking at books, looking for you know uh, vintage books, mm-hmm. looking for. You know, going through maybe we all have these yard sales and garage sales. You can find some some great, you know, some great gems there. But you, you know, having that, provided I have the time to do it, that that time was always against me. It seems like, and I never have enough time. But it just it just seems like I, you know, would love to see a lot a lot more of of that. And as we're, you know, we have um, 
schools and, and nonprofits that are, you know, encouraging that in our kids and mm-hmm. trying to get that in, instilled in them to, about reading and, and a love for reading and a love of books, it, it sure would be nice to have those on every other corner, Yeah, to be honest with you. Well, we've made progress. Yeah. I hope it continues. Yeah. Um, fully agree. All right. What's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? Having lived here, um, this this may be another s- seemingly weird answer, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say the people. The people are the most underrated thing that that we have because, as as we just mentioned earlier, you know we we think about times of crises and and times of need and or uh, natural disasters and things like that where where people and now add you know viruses to that list, um, where people stand up and, and, uh, help out the community. But, you know, these are just good people that live here Mm -hmm. in, in our area. And an example of that is, um, back in September, I was involved in a, in a car accident and, um, I remember getting out you know, shaken up obviously. And I had people stopping not only just to see if I was okay, but people offering to, you know, I can go get you some food, we'll get you some water. I'm like, wait a minute. What? Are you serious? I mean, that's, 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 that's wonderful. I, I, I appreciate that. You know, just the people that live here. And I think for me, since I do live here, sometimes you can just take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And unless it's one of those options that I mentioned a second ago, but I think we, as people kind of underrate ourselves that the goodness that the people have here and, just the willingness to, to help their neighbor out or just have a friendly conversation. Okay. Other than your own, which we can take off the table as well, what's one local nonprofit you appreciate? I'm going to say Heal the City right. here. You know, great organization that, you know, health is, seems like to be on the forefront of people's minds, obviously, lately. But um, there are a lot of people and, and this is a whole separate podcast and a whole separate thing, but you know, food insecurity lends to a, a slew of health problems yeah. Yeah. and, um, they have committed themselves to helping folks who don't have the ability, you know, to have medical care themselves to go out there and, and, uh, receive it. And, uh, just seeing so many success stories, of, of folks coming in and even folks that I know that, you know, said, wow, they, they really helped me out mm-hmm. and, and encouraging a healthier lifestyle. And so, um, they do, they do great work. That was a hard one though, because there's a lot to choose. All from. the nonprofits here, hands down are, are wonderful organizations. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? I'm going to say Youngblood's right. Cafe uh, here in Amarillo, um, and not just because we have a civic group meeting that meets there, but just the food is 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 great. You yeah, um, I love the I love the good old home cooked meal aspect of things, and um, I'm a big breakfast fan. So yeah. that's... I have a really really strong breakfast menu. Mm. Um, it's always crowded too. So oh yeah. A, yeah, tells you you're in the right place. Yeah, yeah, that's a good choice. Okay, what's your favorite coffee shop? I have to say Roasters. Grew up with it. Yeah, and uh, always a, a great, great go to. Is there a particular one you go to? One on Georgia. Okay. Um, typically, because it's it's the closest to you know the the food bank, but but yeah, always always love it. Okay. And last question: uh, When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? 
was actually last year. Was it? Yeah, it was great. We we had uh, an event over at Starlight Ranch, and uh, we went over there afterwards. And, okay. Um, uh, you know, seeing all sorts of different cars and people there, you know, from uh, the attractions and 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 folks coming in, but uh, it was actually last year. All right. It's a good place for people watching, for sure. Yeah. You'll always hear international accents almost any time it's of day, surprising. any day of the week. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was surprised by that as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, that concludes the eight straight questions. Uh, I like to close, Zach, by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? Well, one of the biggest impacts I've had in my life is being outside. Um, mentioned the book part earlier, um, but uh, outdoors and history have always fascinated me. So um, one thing I realized a couple of years ago, my wife and I went, we went to uh, North Carolina, the Outer Banks there, and has an amazing, an amazing history. Not only is it beautiful beaches and lighthouses, and but has an has an amazing history from colonial times all the way up to World War II. But when you look at you know our Bringing this together by saying the outdoor areas that we have here in the Texas Panhandle, one we all know about, Paladura Canyon, but looking at the history, mm-hmm. the sad history of, of Paladura Canyon and other places like Buffalo Lake, you know, south of Umbarger, and of course, like Meredith and, and, and Flint's, you know, out there. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm blown away that we live in an area that has such rich history yeah. related to our, our outdoors that most of us don't know about. And so there, there are plenty of resources out there, plenty of books. And um, the Plains yeah, Museum is there a great you go. storyteller yeah. in, in that regard. And just, just go and just go and 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 check that out. I mean, it, it may seem like on on a day where it's windy. I mean, mm-hmm. and I guess no one will ever know when we're recording this because wind is always yeah. evergreen thing yeah, here. We're, we're not dating ourselves <laughs> at all. <laughs> but uh, but 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 look at that, and and that's something that we've you know, started doing with our kids, kind okay. of relating our history to where we live, to to where we go. So yeah. um, you can never get enough of that. I'm one of those dads that likes to stop and read the historical markers. Um, nice. You know, which I don't understand why you wouldn't want to know what happened here yeah. 100 years ago. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, it just it, it's just amazing to me, and maybe because I'm getting older, I don't know, yeah. but, um, but my kids are, are, are catching on to some of those things too, and I love that. Okay. Zach Wilson, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Zach for the interview. Of course, you can learn more about High Plains Food Bank at hpfb.org. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Lazy Boy Home Furnishings and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Don't forget, the Hey Amarillo 300th episode live show is coming on May 5th. More details, you'll hear those soon. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 292. You see how close we are to 300? Like, just a couple months away. 292. My name is Jason Boyette. And I'll see you next week.